0: I guarantee you that everyone listening to this podcast today, whatever time of the day it's going to be, will have had an experience at some point in time in their career, if not recently, where they have had an, an opportunity to either change something or do something in a different way that would improve an outcome. And what I mean by that is they've gone and done something, they have felt frustrated And they turned around and thought why are we doing it that way we should do it this way if we do it this way it will make things far more streamlined far more better and all of a sudden they've got the solution
1: hi folks i'm dan dworkis and this is the emergency mind podcast a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure our guest this episode is paul swinton Paul is a flight paramedic and the National Educational Lead for the Scottish Air Ambulance Service. He's also the co-inventor of SCRAM, which stands for Structured Critical Airway Management. As you'll hear in this episode, SCRAM looks at human factors and rational design principles to put together high-performance kit or gear solutions for emergency critical care and retrieval medicine. One important and very cool note is that the SCRAM line was developed in collaboration with Dr. Scott Weinkart of MCRIT fame. In this episode, we talk about what it actually takes to change how something is done. We talk about what Paul calls the fog of innovation. We talk about systems thinking and human-centered design. And we do a deep dive into the details of how Scram kits work as a model for how environmental and systems design features can nudge individuals and teams towards or away from high performance. There's a lot of medical detail in this episode, but even if you're coming from a non-medical background, the underlying concepts of the decisions that the Scram team has made are going to be obvious and really useful for you. Before we get started, a quick reminder. If you want to join individuals and teams around the world who are working to perform better during times of crisis and emergency, there are so many ways to get involved with the Emergency Mind Project community, and we would love to have you. The easiest way to get started is to try our free crisis skills test, which you can find at emergencymind.com. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode with Paul Swinton. I hope you enjoy. All right, Paul. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It was a delight to meet you with at Retrieval. I've been a huge fan of what you all have been doing and and following along with your stuff. And I I think you're going to be just awesome for the folks listening to this. No pressure. So I'm really glad that you're here.
0: Dan, thanks very much uh, for inviting me. Uh, Like I said at the retrieval, it was fantastic meeting you and uh, getting involved with like minds uh, was a drive of uh, improving pre-hospital and in-hospital performance. For patients globally, love it. So we're going to be doing a couple of interesting things in this
1: episode. We're going to be approaching things a little bit differently than normal, from sort of a different angle than a couple of the most recent episodes. And I'm excited about that because I think there's a lot of synergy there. But before we really drop into it, can you give folks who maybe don't know you a quick overview of who you are and what you do?
0: Yeah, um, my name's Paul Swinton. I'm the national education lead at the Scottish Air Ambulance Service and uh, Hems Paramedic. I'm also the co-inventor of SCRAM, which stands for Structured Critical Airway Management. SCRAM is a solution that enhances the performance of emergency anesthesia and is currently being used by high performance teams in both the pre-hospital and hospital settings in the UK and in many parts of the world.
1: Awesome. So we're going to, for sure, spend a lot of time digging into the why of Scram and because I think it's a really useful lens to look at a lot of stuff in the high performance universe as a whole. But I want to focus on you for just a second first. So tell me about your journey in this. How did you start? What got you into to flight medicine and what's that path been like for you?
0: So my career started in South Africa, where I started to become a paramedic. And then my journey brought me over to the UK. In between that time, I worked a little bit uh, in the offshore industry, running a hospital on a size of a research vessel and coming over to the UK, worked within the West Midlands Ambulance Service on road ambulances and eventually came up to Scotland with my family where we now have a family with two young daughters. And the, the transition across to the flight program within Scotland is one whereby you need to serve a bit of time within the ambulance service get to know how the ambulance service works and then uh, apply as anyone else would uh, for the actual program itself. Getting onto the program is, like I said, through an application process, work your way through it. But we work slightly different within Scotland to other parts of the world in that our flight program is paid for by the government. Scottish government pays for the whole operation and that's to move patients from the Highlands and Islands to hospitals locally within Scotland. We also are co-located with retrieval teams. These retrieval teams are adult, pediatric, and neonatal retrieval service known as Star. This is the national retrieval service for Scotland. And as a flight crew, we work very closely with all three teams. So there is quite a lot of cross-pollination of skills, knowledge across the wider team. Within the Scottish Air Ambulance Service. Currently, I'm serving as the national education lead, which involves developing and promoting education within the Air Ambulance Division on a national level. There's a lot of different types of
1: expertise that are being brought together to do the type of work that you're describing, right? So you're describing like the flight crews and the ability to deliver medical care in sort of austere environments from the back of a helicopter. You're also talking about like the interface with a totally different, equally skilled, but differently skilled crew in the rescue folks, and the retrieval folks. I hope that that sort of mashup between two highly skilled teams that need to work together but aren't necessarily the same people is something that we're going to explore a little bit too. But one question going backward just a little bit. So when you were starting your training, you started as a paramedic. Were you from you know super early on, like, I want to fly in helicopters, I want to do air medicine, or was like paramedic work and pre-hospital care are the real
0: passion for you, and then you sort of were exposed to the flight options of stuff later. So I, I originally wanted to become a helicopter pilot. I had no idea what paramedicine was about when I was in South Africa. So it just so happened that it's a journey I took exposed me to very early on in my career to see what medicine was about in the pre-hospital setting and a mix of flight And I thought that that was quite a cool mix Hmm. of aviation plus medicine. And that kind of sparked my interest to then continually pursue avenues that would help achieve that sort of end outcome.
1: And what was your mindset like then, right? When you were training to be a paramedic, you were thinking about flying helicopters. What was the, you know, sort of like the earlier versions of your mindset? Like, were you already thinking about some of these themes of human performance? Were you already thinking about the interface between individuals and gear? Or was there a moment that you were like, aha, like here, now I really am starting to like open my eyes and understand this?
0: No, I think like anyone new to the career of medicine, pre-hospital care or flight medicine, flight programs, anyone new, there is so much other stuff going on in your head. Like simply being a good paramedic or good doctor, good nurse, and trying to get those patients under your belt and the time served to actually gain the expertise to be a good clinician. It takes time and a lot of cognitive bandwidth to achieve that. And I think that actually would bring us on quite nicely onto. Some of the many challenges that I think hospitals see with junior doctors, whereby they're trying to learn new skills, new environments, a new profession, and all of these things mashed up in their head, trying to then talk about cognitive load and the the things we're, we're going to be talking about shortly, I think it's a bit far away from their mind than what people would like it to be. So I'm hearing you say that as you're starting out,
1: as most of us start out in one version or not of this career, that you're so focused on sort of just keeping your head above water and getting any of the basics right, that you're often not thinking more broadly, or you're often not exposed to these concepts until you're a little
0: bit farther yeah, you're, along. You're, think, you're thinking about passing that, that physiology exam or putting that paper through whatever system to allow you to pass that exam. You're not actually thinking about the finesse of what Mm. the job is. And I think that is one of the big challenges of medicine is how do we bring these important skills back into the education and development and training of our younger selves to allow us to become masters at them earlier on within our career, Mm. rather than becoming novices once we are at a stage in our career where we are expected to be seniors and only master those skills much later on because we've only been introduced those skills or those important factors much later on within our career. Oh yeah, there's this whole arc about like,
1: what are you training people actually to do? right are you training them to be a good student or are you training them to be an autonomous decision maker that applies knowledge under pressure that sort of operates in these weird environments and those are two very different things when did you first start making that switch over like what was it that got you you know more focused on the broader concepts the mastery like you're describing and and the finesse of the job as opposed to just the
0: you know I'm Paul the paramedic like you know scooping people up and getting it done i think that probably started When I came over to the UK and started Mm -hmm. to work within the flight program. And the reason for that was getting exposed to a wider pool of people, a wider knowledge base within medicine, but also people who, who have worked in other parts of the world. So coming from South Africa, we see a lot of trauma. It's high intense pace. It's phenomenally busy. And the stuff you see is inside of this world. But the time that I was working and qualifying to become a paramedic, the concepts that we're talking about now were kind of innovative ideas. They were seedlings and not big drives as they are now. And I think medicine's taking a very different route compared to how it was several years ago in bringing these new ideas rather than them being on the fringes. They are now becoming common practice and expected to be. Within your armamentarium of not only managing yourself, but managing your team, your environment, and the patients we are there to serve. Absolutely, and I think you're highlighting what
1: is a real educational deficit or an educational gap. I guess I would say in a lot of places, which is that we expect people to come out of our pipeline not just capable of delivering medical care, but understanding some of the details of managing themselves and their team and what are human factors and what is cognitive load and what does the environment look like and how do we optimize performance across a variety of things and increase the surface area over which we're able to deliver high quality care. There's this gap. We're playing a little bit of catch up in terms of how to teach folks how to do that. And often those are concepts that are only being introduced late in the game as opposed to
0: from a more sort of early and accelerated, I guess I'd call it, program. In pre-hospital programs that teach nurses, you know, paramedics and even nurses, I would say they are even further behind the curve in the teaching of newer and upcoming clinicians than what you are probably finding in medicine. And I think part of the reason for that is how new our programs are compared to how established the likes of medicine actually is in the evolution of medicine. That's one of the things that we could have as hospital providers as a feather they in our cap in quite young professions makes us quite easy to pivot that boat. Whereas a older, more entrenched profession that has got a lot of history behind it makes it a lot more challenging to pivot the boat and the training of the clinicians. To me, there's an
1: underlying piece in there, which is the sort of sense of identity of who you are and what you do, right? Like when you tell somebody or when a paramedic tells somebody, I'm a paramedic, what are they conveying? What is it that they think they do right? in some sense the the doctor ethos, at least in the states, at least how I was brought up into it, has a bunch of pieces to it that might or might not still fit the actual role of what a doctor is in society right there's this like, oh, you know we, we're going to hearken back to the old days where doctors had you know these little black bags and would make house calls and be sort of like the village elder in some ways, and that just like doesn't really match reality a lot and so even as we're thinking about what are the new cutting edges of how we should be teaching people and building a pipeline, I think we're also, I think it's also on us to do a little subtraction, right? To take out the parts that don't make sense, and maybe some things should be in a museum and not in current practice in the way that we're doing it.
0: I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you 100. You know, hey, I think we, there there are many lessons that many many programs can learn from other parts of the world, mm-hmm. and I think. The programs that choose to look at other programs and other parts of the world, take the good parts. The bad parts, fair enough, leave them behind. But have a look at why they're the bad parts. And that might tell you an interesting story as to what's happened and is there something that you could maybe reflect upon as to why that's a bad part in one sort of system and you guys are actually worked it out. That level of insight could support a different way of educating people elsewhere. Yeah. And
1: you said it before was you were talking about like your transition over to the UK side of things, like the absolute value of cognitive and experiential diversity when it comes to solving unique problems and building teams yeah. together. Right. Having people that aren't in quotes just like you doing what you did coming from where you came from, right? Having this mix of people that approach problem sets differently, that have different sets of experiences, that have seen different methods of doing it, and creating a rich, diverse, psychologically safe space where you can have those discussions and be like, oh, you know, Paul, why do you do it that way? Like, how did you learn that thing? And well, Dan, I don't know. Why do you do it that way? I don't know. Let's go figure it out. Right. And like, hopefully in the process of that creative friction, generating a team and a training environment that is better than either of us could have put together to begin with.
0: I guarantee you that everyone listening to this podcast today, whatever time of the day it's going to be will have had an experience at some point in time in their career if not recently where they have had an, an opportunity to either change something or do something in a different way that would improve an outcome and what i mean by that is they've gone and done something they have felt frustrated and they have turned around and thought why are we doing it that way ah oh, this is we should do it this way if we do it this way it will make things far more streamlined, far more better. And all of a sudden they've got the solution, but what's preventing them from implementing that solution. And that's something we can dig into, but later, which I called the the fog of innovation. No, no. Yeah. I want to dig into that now. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me. So I've labeled it the fog of innovation and fog is one of those things that it sits around, it sits on the coast, it sits on the ground and it's you can sometimes not see what's in front of you. But with a little bit of wind in your sails, the fog will move. And the right wind will shift the fog a lot. Now, the fog of innovation are things like your manager saying, yeah, no, they, we've they've always done it that way and that's just the way we're going to carry on doing it. A lack of support and lack of insight as to how change management could possibly happen. A big one, is feeling insecure about what your peers may actually think of your idea. And it may be revolutionary, but the thing about these ideas and these innovative sort of things that people have, they will be on a daily basis that they'll think of ideas. It's about capturing them and finding those golden nuggets that will change the way we do things. And out of all of those ideas that we create or that we identify, we don't know which one of those are the Apples, the Googles, the Amazons, the things that change practice in more ways than we can possibly imagine. And we're not looking for the big ticket items because the big ticket items are the things that they happen, but they are harder to get over the line. We're looking for the low-lying fruit which eventually do lead to the big ticket items. Oh, just, just dropping the knowledge
1: here like this. I love it, right? So, so I'm like totally inspired by this thought that like everybody going through their shifts and going through their time have these countless moments where they can choose to reflect on what they're feeling to make a difference and to start nudging the team in a more positive direction, right? Because like you're sort of talking about things that are like accumulation of marginal gains and you're sort of talking about like the creative spark and the ability to envision a better future than what you're seeing. And also this kind of idea, you know, we talk, we talk about in the States, like the the ethos of leave no trace camping, right? Like you camp in a spot and when you leave that spot, you leave it better than when you found it, right? So yeah. I've always had this like vision of like leave no trace emergency medicine, right? Like you go through your shift and you leave the system better than you found it as you go through it. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm loving what you're saying here. <laughs> How do people do this, right? What's been your experience with that? How do you capture these ideas? How do you get through this fog of innovation and find the whatever it takes to sort of like put some some energy
0: into this passion and make a change? So there are practical ways, which I'll get to shortly, but the first one is identifying leaders within your organization, like for instance yourself, and I would say myself as well, where We have been paving the path for many years and we've bumped our heads. We've experienced the fog ourselves and we've set our way through it. And it's sharing those ideas that the fog exists and we've experienced it. You know, when people look at yourself, down, and you come up with these, you know, ideas on high performance, the ideas haven't come just because you haven't experienced any sort of Strife in achieving that knowledge. You know, it's not this. This, this sure. This owed upon me. You know, there's there's a lot of hours of thinking about it, bumping your head, and getting it wrong. And the thing is, the amount of times that you get it wrong is phenomenal. But you need to get it wrong to get it right, and that's just the journey of innovation and of changing the environments and improving the performance of systems that we work in, and. To do that, people need support, need access to the right people to help nurture those seedlings of ideas, because mm. they are very, very easy to kill them all. And what I mean by that, it could be a simple throwaway comment that somebody doesn't actually think about. That throwaway comment could completely kill an idea, a drive, or whatever. So... Identifying leaders within your organization and key people who you trust, who you've seen bring ideas to life and move forward with them. Collaborate with them. Collaboration is the key to innovation. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. And the more you collaborate, the more support you'll get and the easier the drive will be to carry the baton over the line. The practical elements that you can do is you could set up an idea register where ideas are important to people. And part of that importance is owning that idea. So if I come to you with an idea, as much as in the, inf- in the early stages of it, I may feel a little bit vulnerable as to whether that idea has any legs in it or whether that idea Has any, you know, it might, I might think it sounds silly or daft, but at the same time, if there is validity in it, I want to be part of that journey to run with it. And that's where the credibility and ownership of those ideas come from. So Hmm. having it register where you can log these ideas and assign the ownership appropriately to those individual ideas. And those individual ideas may turn into an innovative product at the end and supporting that journey to ultimately reward the person at the end of that journey as owners of that particular idea, you all of a sudden set an example that others will want to follow and others will feel empowered to be a part of.
1: You know, we were talking before we hit record here about some of the themes we wanted to get to, and one of the biggest themes that we were sort of aiming towards was figuring out the interplay, the design of the interplay between the human and the environment and the gear, right? To sort of look at that edge and how that edge and the design of that edge really modifies the ability of a team to perform. I think we accidentally just bumped into that backwards from like a different level, right? I had assumed we were going to talk about that and like the gear kit and talk about like the scram sort of model, which I I want to do. But you're actually talking about this a meta level up from that, which is if I'm running a team, if I'm running an organization, how do I modify the interaction between the individuals on the team and the environment in order to produce a space that favors creativity and innovation and growth. And I'm hearing you talk about things like increase the ability to collaborate, decrease the friction to getting ideas out there, building an idea registry. And I'm loving this, man. So let's shift gears slightly. So instead of being a person with an idea, maybe now I'm the leader of a system, a healthcare system or a non-healthcare system, and I'm trying to create a space where these ideas can grow. What else do I do with this? From that
0: perspective, what else am I trying to build? So you need to be able to evaluate the idea. So being able to record the ideas are one thing, but then you need a system to be able to rate or score that idea as to which ones we're going to pull a trigger on. Because like I said earlier, not all of them are going to be the Amazons, Apples, or but there might be one. And if there is one, that would completely revolutionize your system. But the thing is, the ones that aren't, those are the ones that are going to give you the marginal gains that improves performance on the shop floor, improves performance in the way in which your whole organization functions at smaller levels, at many intervals that you can't even begin to calculate. So capturing the data, i.e. capturing the idea, having a system that clearly scores that idea on the likelihood of whether or not from a organization's values perspective it's something that we would like to invest in and move forward with aligning the idea with the organization's values would support the the organization further in their strategic goals even this in turn would help any clinician who is submitting ideas, see the direction that if I submit an idea, it's going to go this far. This is the likelihood of people actually listening to what I have to say. And the ideas that aren't very good, park them. Because maybe it's not just their time. That idea might have something to it after a few other steps have
1: been completed. Super interesting. I'm reflecting as we're talking about this upon like all of the strange little ideas that I've had over the years of doing this work, right? And the, the couple of
0: them yeah. that I've actually gone forward with. But why haven't them... the others? Yeah. Why, why have you, what stopped? So that's what I talk about, the fog. What actually stopped you? From, you you moved the other ones forward. What stopped you with the one that you didn't? And that's where most people stop is because of the fog that they experience in taking the idea that they have and running with it. And I think the more people that hear that people like you, me, who have actually taken ideas forward, and you know, Scram started off in a small little office for one small little team, and people decided to take a risk on the idea. And this small little team hand stitched this idea together. And this is now a international product and commercial brand being used by high performance teams around the world.
1: All right. Perfect bridge. Let's go right into that. So what is Scram? If folks are listening to this and they, they're like, why do they keep saying this word? Right? Like, what is it? And then, and then I, I want to hear the story of like what it took to get it there. and Because I think in doing so, we're going to tell a bunch of just like absolute gems of ideas about how human
0: performance works. Okay, so SCRAM stands for Structured Critical Airway Management. It is a series of airway bags that are designed to improve and enhance the performance of emergency anesthesia or emergency in both pediatric and adults. The way in which it's designed is to pre-prepare all of your equipment before the procedure is needed. So way back in in the calm light of day, you'd be setting up your kit, preparing your for the intubate before you even know that, that that intubation is needed. That bag is then, it consists of a primary use area where you have two setups. It's got a high contrast a stenciled picture on the primary use area, which makes it very easy from a retic perspective and easy for stocking. And you've got two setups. On the left, you've got a large adult. And on the right, you've got a smaller adult. And everything that's common to both runs down the middle. And that type of setup is very common in other medical kits, where you have sets that are common to both Um, systems. You uh, generally run down the middle of, of the setup. Then you have a secondary use area, which consists of rescue devices, This is grayed out. So when you open the bag, the first thing you see is this high contrast color that draws your eye to this large adult, small adult, and focuses your attention on that. But you know that the secondary use area is available and that has all of your rescue devices. And you also have access to your surgical airway. So you've got your plan A, plan B, and plan C all ready to go without having to dig and look anywhere else. We've rationalized the amount of equipment that you carry within the bag, because if you refer to Hicks law, the more decisions that we are faced with, the time to make decision increases logarithmically. And a bag that is not appropriately stocked or open leads to Longer decisions being made and increases the risk of error. So we've, we've made the bag in such a way that it rationalizes choice and decision and actually makes people sit back and think about what are they actually going to need? And within the adult, the adult scram bag, we don't carry pediatric kit. And the reason for that is it's a conscious decision based upon data. All of our RSIs have been reviewed and about one and a half percent of the RSIs that we do are pediatric RSIs. So having pediatric kits in an adult bag, all that that's going to lead to is too much stock. It's going to divert our attention and it's going to reduce the time it takes to actually get the right kits and do the job that we need to do. It's also going to increase the cost of and turnover of kit because Any airway we do is messy and anything we touch, vomits on the bags, that ends up getting soiled. So why would we have pediatric kits for an adult RSI anywhere near us? That's why we have a pediatric scram bag. Now, moving on to the pediatric scram bags, it's completely different. It's designed in a different way. And why? The reason for that is... Most of the pediatric airways we deal with, we know that basic airway junks were just fine. We don't need to reach directly for a tube or anything like that. So if we were to design a bag that when you open it, all you see is intubation kit. And I don't know how many of your audience is or how much of the audience are proficient at pediatric RSI because it generally is a lower volume skill compared to adults. Sure. If you If you were to be open that pediatric bag and all you saw was intubation kits, all of a sudden, your cognitive bandwidth would start to narrow. Whereas we are promoting better practice in that we know that most basic adjuncts work just fine in the pediatric patient. So when you open the bag, the first thing you see are eyegels, and you can very quickly. Escalate that airway by simply moving over to the primary use area of the pediatric bag. And in that you've got a large child and a small child set up. The big difference in the pediatric setup on the primary uh, section is that the tubes themselves aren't secured to the board. There's no way of securing a tube on the board. And the reason for that compared to the adult is we need to be quite a bit more specific about the tubes we select for a pediatric airway. So we're promoting better practice. So you need to then go off and look for the right size airway according to the airway of patient that you have.
1: But this is amazing. I wanna jump in for one second and do some backlink translating and then turn it back over to you, okay? So if you were listening to this and you are not in medicine, don't worry, this is, you're still gonna make sense. So RSI is rapid sequence intubation. It is essentially delivering anesthetic medication and taking the airway of a sick patient, presumably typically to put them onto a ventilator, although not always. An eye gel is also called an LMA, and it's it's not really the same thing as intubating a patient. It's sort of putting a thing into their mouth that goes around their airway, although not necessarily inside it, and it helps them breathe in a different way. One of the big differences between intubating kids and adults is that most adults are the same size, but kids come in lots of shapes and sizes. Because of that, you have to make a lot more careful decisions about how to size equipment for a child more accurately than you do for an adult, where basically it's kind of but not quite one size fits all. So as we're talking about these things, I want to make this implicit idea explicit that What Paul and what the SCRAM group are talking about is that there is a limited bandwidth to make decisions. These decisions are challenging. The circumstances are extraordinarily challenging. And so we have an opportunity for failure when the demand exceeds our supply of resources. One thing we can do to address that is create systems that are more logically designed that nudge us towards the right decision more of the time. Right. So all of these little details about whether or not you're seeing the first thing first, or you're limiting your choices, or you're expanding your choices in the case of the pediatric airways is like absolute gold, right? Because what you're talking about is eliminating opportunities for unnecessary failure and creating environments where success is the most likely emergent property of the way you set it up. All right,
0: off my soapbox, back to you. No, that's uh, bang on perfect. Moving on from the, the pediatric scram. There are two different versions of pediatric scrum. There's an EMS version, and then there's an in-hospital version or a pediatric retrievalist bag. And the reason for that is the expertise within pediatric airway management. Now, many of your listeners uh, might ask the question, well, don't we have the same kit in both the bags? And the answer is we have the right kit for the right people within each of the bags. And what I mean by that is within the pre-hospital environment, we do not need half-size tubes for a pediatric airway. That airway would then get changed in hospital. So from a decision perspective, for someone who doesn't do pediatric airways all the time, we've rationalized the kit to a point where The bag is now nice and compact, and it fits the kit that allows you to perform any RSI for a PED in a pre-hospital or hospital environment, but with a rationalized setup. One example for this would be the Macron C circuit is not held within the pre-hospital pediatric version whereas it is within the in-hospital version. And again, this comes to expertise mm-hmm. and the level of skill required for managing those types of airways. So there's a lot more detail in, in between the two, and uh, I would recommend you know, having a look look at my site, happy to go into the show notes in regards to that. Moving on, to, on from that, we also have Tactical Scram. Now, Tactical Scram is a more compact version of the adult Scram. And it's designed with tactical combat casualty care in mind. In that when we open the bag, the first thing you see are suction, basic airway junks and surgical airway. And when I say basic airway junks, it's got your eye gel and Godel and nasopharyngeal airways. And to move on to escalate from there is very, very easy. It's just simply going to the primary use area, again, you've got a large adult on the left, smaller adult on the right, and everything that's common to both within it easily reach. The reason for that change in setup is because it's designed for tactical combat casualty care. And does it preclude people within the pre-hospital EMS environment from using it? Absolutely not. It's more compact and fits into things quite nicely. And the reason for that subtle change is the community came to us and asked us to design a bag for the pediatric population. And then they came to us again to say, can you design a more compact version of the adult? And that was how the evolution went from the adult scram to what is now pediatric and tactical scram. One thing that I've missed out within all of those is the surgical airway. Within all of the bags, there's a pull-out kit dump that if you were busy with an airway, your primary kit dump, which is immediately in front of you, imagine how that would look if you got to a point where you can't intubate, can't ventilate. The kit would be all over the place. So what we've designed is a way in which you can simply pull a surgical airway kit dump out and it cognitively resets your ability to then move on to the next stage, i.e. surgical airway. And then everything at that point of your journey, you're leveraging gross motor indicators rather than fine motor indicators. Because of where you, with the type of patient that you're with, you're in a can't intubate, can't ventilate setting, leveraging gross motor indicators. So we're using high contrast colors that identify where the kit related for that particular airway is within the bag. The surgical airway kit dump has got two sections: a yellow section and a blue section. The yellow section is for physicians, which is a scalpel finger bougie technique. The blue section is for your med techs or for people who use a cortex kit. It's just a different, the different yeah. setup. But all of that would be set up in the calm light of day before you've even got to that session. Before yeah. you've even got to that patient. So
1: this is such a brilliant example of a really sophisticated approach to a common model that we come back to a bunch on the Emergency Mind Project, which is this idea of the it's a matrix, right? Like what does it take for a group to perform under pressure? We've divided the universe into a three by two matrix. The rows are levels of organization, individual, team, and system ITS. And the columns are time, either on the X or off the X, Right, where off is either before or after or in between. And again, what you're describing here, and, and I think why it was so important to take, to take a moment to really step through the richness of the detail of the decisions that went into this, right, is that we're really highlighting the way that on the X activity informs off the X building and that off the X building enables on the X activity right? The synergistic relationship that goes back and forth between that. We're also seeing a really interesting interplay between the individual team and systems level dynamics of these decisions, right? Because you have an individual operator and what they can do in that moment is influenced by what the team and what the system has set up ahead of and before time, right? This is just like, thank you for taking us through that example. That's like such a rich version of why we did the Itso Matrix as a whole, to sort of explain some of these concepts if you're not familiar with this kind of a thing. And my guess is that if you're listening to this, whether or not you're in medicine, hopefully you are catching the underlying themes of rational design based on not work in theory, but work as done, right? Taking a moment to really think through what it takes to actually accomplish a task in real life scenarios, and then work backward from that to make success more likely in those moments. That is just super cool to think through that.
0: One other thing which I think your audience might actually appreciate and and this this might actually come to many things that you that you <laughs> see is that we can use things in design, which we call a visual hierarchy, and to help us design things. One example which Dan, I know that 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 you've heard and and, and you've seen is is the decision we've made in the choice of colors we use to identify the types of endotracheal tubes that we have or the sizes of endotracheal tubes that we have. Now, in a pediatric airway, what size of tube is the most important? And they're all important. The most important thing is the right size of tube. So if we were to add a level of visual hierarchy to that section of the design, if we were to add too much color, it would Add a level of priority inappropriately to a section of the bag that needs to have a flat hierarchy of importance because each of them are just as important as the other because you don't know the type of airway that you're going to. And that is some of the the smaller idiosyncrasies that are within the design and philosophy of Scrap. Love it. Because we talked earlier about innovation and
1: growing an idea. And what was it like getting this idea in front of people? And so you have an idea about how you want to make something better under pressure. What did that feel like
0: bringing that out to the whole group? So I was mindful that within any new idea, you have the earlier doctors, and extending right the way down to you know the laggards, and I knew that I needed to find an earlier doctor to collaborate with. And to run with and to have a similar voice to just try it. And when I presented it to, to the team, they identified that it seems simple. It's not going to change much of what we do because we're carrying the same kits; We're just carrying it in a different way. So the barrier to entry was low and it seamlessly integrated into the practice of what we were doing. This was then trialed, and I was open to feedback. Like whatever feedback people had, any feedback was great. Even if it was rubbish, we were just open to feedback. And that openness and being receptive to allow people to come and feedback made them feel part of the journey themselves. And all of a sudden you're creating a community around an idea who all want it to succeed to the point whereby you have got a design that is ready to be released in the adult version, but before you even release that, the community are already asking you, can you design something for pediatrics? Because we are struggling for pediatrics with pe- love it. To where we are now, where we've just taken the same theory and philosophy and designed the emergency surgical module for emergency surgical procedures that would that support the armamentarium of that. So I'm talking about thoracotomy, or prostate, so that's recently been launched, and again using the same philosophy as the original adult scram and applying it to surgical intervention to help improve cognitive load, improve performance, and reduce error. Amazing, man.
1: Okay, I have to ask this. What does your kitchen look like? It's it's ordered. Okay. I just had to know that. I'm just getting this vision of it, you know high contrast backing and, and knives done in the order of the but no, I'm 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 kidding, but this has been an absolutely amazing conversation about this. And I, I like I can't thank you enough for coming on and well, first of all, I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing because I think that it's highlighting like these just absolutely crucial themes and what it takes to actually deliver emergency care in the way that we can, right? Not just like pulling up the bottom, but also pushing forward the front of like what's possible for us to do. And I think I'm
0: deeply uh, grateful for that. Could I just say one one other thing that actually really helped in moving the whole thing forward was research. So nobody would listen to what I had to say up until I, up until the first publication of a comparison between standard practice and Scrum and the use of pre-prepared equipment and drugs compared to standard practice reduced our time from decision to RSI. To confirmation with entitled co2 by just under 10 minutes that's huge and we're talking about you know you decide that we need to do the rsi all the bags are packed are pa- you need to open up all the bags you need to drop your drugs you need to do we reduced it by just under 10 minutes and people ask well how, how things should should happen look quicker than that. But when, it, when you sit down and actually time how long it takes. Things it should happen on. a lot quicker than that. Yeah. But like it, it takes time to draw up drugs, to, to draw them up correctly. It takes time to set up your kit and do it correctly. Yeah, we can cut corners, but that's where errors come in. And that's where patient safety becomes a higher you know, concern. I love it. While as we're closing out here, I want to give you the
1: chance to issue a challenge to everybody listening to this folks that are in medicine or out of medicine, what do you want them to do differently tomorrow after listening to this episode?
0: Challenge yourself to the next time you have a moment where you ask yourself, this could be done better. Why are we doing things this way? Challenge yourself to try and move through the fog and find somebody to collaborate with and take that idea and move it on because you never know as to what that idea could become. Amazing.
1: Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's, it's an honor to have you.
0: No worries. Thanks very much, mate. It's, it's very good to see you again.
1: All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own, and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.